Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Pierre Bornard Grande to discuss his book, Desire, Flaubert, Proust, Fitzgerald, Miller, Lana Del Rey. Thanks for tuning in. Part of MSU Press's Breakthroughs in Mimetic Theory series, Pierre Bornard Grande's Desire draws on both modern masterpieces and iconic works of contemporary pop culture to shed new light on the frustrating and repetitive nature of human relations in a world of vanishing taboos. In novels and plays by Gustave Flaubert, Marcel Proust, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Arthur Miller, and music by Lana Del Rey, Grande sees desire operating in a complex, slippery way that eludes philosophical and psychoanalytical attempts to pin it down. For Grande, these and other great works of literature corroborate René Girard's understanding of desire as taking shape according to the other's desire. This mimetic approach frees desire from certain preconceptions of psychology and puts literary criticism in touch with the concrete substance of fictional narratives. I'm pleased to welcome Pierre Bornard Grande to the show today to discuss desire. He's a professor in the Department of Pedagogy, Religion, and Social Studies at the Western Norway University of Applied Sciences. Pierre, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Good to be here. So your book is called Desire, and and throughout your thinking is informed by René Girard's mimetic theory. For listeners who might be unfamiliar, how does what we talk about as mimetic desire differ from our common understanding of desire as a sort of passion or driving, motivating force? Well, desire, in uh, my uh, way of uh, seeing it, is this normal desire. But when you say the word desire, you often think about Freud and the erotic desire. So in one way, it's a difficult word because people straight away assume it to be erotic. And also that it's kind of that desire is something you fetch from the sources of yourself. And in that way, I cotton on to René Girard and his uh, understanding that desire is according to the other's desire. In a way, this takes away any kind of predisposed desire. You know, like, for example, in Hegel, who said our main desire is to be accepted by others or Nietzsche said it's the desire for power, the will to power. Girard takes it out of all of this and we talk about whatever, <laughs> whoever you meet in a way and, and, you, and you become fascinated or uh, you become uh, disgusted, but you cotton on to the desire of the other. So what happens to you in life is very much decided by whose models you have. And it's not kind of your politically correct models, Gandhi and uh, all these, Martin Luther King, all these uh, positive persons, but it's who you deep down really desire. And that can be your neighbor, that can be you know, somebody very close to you, and it can be many people. And the fascinating job is to see how desire can take all kinds of forms because it's not preconceived. It's not teleological. It's rational in the way that it will have consequences. But it all depends on who, who you are desiring and in which way you desire. 
and how you cognitively also what you do with this feedback you get from other people. Everything depends on the other in a way. Desire has this tendency to turn bad, to turn nasty. So <laughs> it's very uh, important to pick the right models. So you, you don't have models that kind of create unnecessary rivalry and conflict. I'm interested in this question of models and, and the notion that we could select what we desire. I wonder if we could spend it a touch longer on thinking about desire as a concept in your terms and in Gerard's terms. One of the things I was thinking of while you were talking is the degree to which what you're describing is a kind of system or a sort of mechanism isn't quite the right word, but a, a sort of way of parsing others, of participating in a social system. It's a f desire as a function, as opposed to a sort of original desire, as you say. What do you see as the social function of desire? Uh, it's difficult to answer that question when, when there is no preconceived, you know, it can lead to, to anything because what you get fascinated or what you get disgusted by, it doesn't need to have a system. You know, but it leads to conflict, breakups of relationships. It usually is triangular. It's not like in Hegel, where you have the slave and the master. There's only them two, usually in the modern world, or in any kind of human world. There is usually a third person mediating the desire. And after a while, you often get more preoccupied with the mediator than the object. That you see, I guess, most clearly in a love relationship, you know, where you desire the object, but because of other people desiring the same object, you get so preoccupied with all the rivals that you, in a way, lose contact with the real object. And one can also wonder, is there a real object? You know, what makes you fall in love with this girl? It can be, aha, you've seen so many films. The invitation has always has begun and your parents have said that this kind of girl we, we would like, you know, and friends and so and so on. So everything is kind of, <laughs> it's a kind of an anarchy of desire. I wonder if another way of approaching the question would be to think about what does the culture do with desire or what does the culture make of desire? You're, you're talking about individual longing for you know, something that they see others longing for or something that they see see others enacting and, and thus want to try to attain their version of that. How does desire function on a cultural level? Well, you have, let's say, uh, uh, in America, this typical you, you desire the girl uh, next door, this kind of Britney Spears type <laughs> of girl. That can be different in, uh, in different cultures. They who succeed mimetically is, are usually they who understands the cultural codes best. But the cultural codes uh, differ in, in many cultures. The American dream, for example, it's global today. And I, I would say, it's easier to attain the, the American dream in Norway today than it is in America. You know, Girard is a thinker who is very un-French 
in the way that all the French structuralists and deconstructionists uh, go against this notion of order and similarities and say everything is dissimilar. But Girard said, no, desire is that you don't want to be similar on the areas where you don't like yourself in a way. So the, the big positive question is how to accept similarities. Much more difficult than dissimilarity or differences. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the role of, I mean, one of the things that we're going to talk about with, in terms of your book is that you're looking at you know, literature and art and other objects of desire or models of desiring. What role does the sort of object, you know, the aesthetic object play in the dynamic that you're describing? So you might desire, you know, a person or a, a way of being that's, as you say, mediated by a kind of third thing. Where does the aesthetic object fit into the scheme? Uh, well, in a way, less and less. Uh, let's say somebody says that this painting of uh, Van Gogh is just fantastic. And then uh, you see that so many desire the same painting that you get, it puts you off and then you begin to find uh, some other painter much more interesting. You know, it's all about mimetic desire, this. Because it's got to do also with, you know, Van Gogh is a marvelous painter, but it's difficult to find objective criteria for what you like and what you don't like. And uh, also you change. And that, I think, in my experience of life, I see that it's more and more that people change their views because of the people they meet. Uh, and if you get into conflict, let's say in your marriage, you begin kind of when, when your wife says yes, you say no. And when <laughs> you say Van Gogh, she says uh, And you know, it, it's very slippery, everything. <laughs> I wonder if we might push this further by thinking about those boundaries. I mean, it sounds like the way that you're thinking of the aesthetic object, you know, the painting or whatever is as a mediator in that example that you gave. My wife and I might engage in an argument about a painting, and that's a way of triangulating, you know, our desire, you know, for for self improvement, for you know, evidence of personal good taste, uh, or as a shared relationship. I mentioned it in the introduction, and one of the things that you deal with early on in the book is the the notion of prohibition, because it seems like in that relationship. We're always disciplining each other, right? We're always putting up boundaries like this is what good taste is and thus to be imitated or this is, you know, what bad taste is and thus to be gotten rid of. How does prohibition change the dynamic we're talking about or, or even grow out of it? Yeah, a good question. Well, if you look at prohibitions, I think uh, it's very important to go back to traditional societies. Think of, for example, in Judaism, you had this 613 laws, which are 365 are prohibitions. And uh, to understand them, you must see that they are good. They have a good meaning. It's when desire creates a new environment, then some of them you don't need anymore, you know, in a more liberal society. But people misunderstand this about prohibitions. They are there to help people, not to get entangled into that desire takes completely over and to help people from societies who get violent. So if you think of the scapegoat, 
who was just killed before. And then one thought that because of uh, the peace it uh, restored, it was something divine. I think today the scapegoating creates what I would call psychological violence. For example, what we talk about culture is this scapegoating of tastes and it's milder. And uh, I think maybe in that way, mimetic desire says, to, in the modern world, it says more than the scapegoat. Scapegoat is, in a way, we are not finished with scapegoating by any means, but it takes milder versions. Today, people are talking about uh, a soft totalitarianism. It's interesting because I read just about it. Like in America, people who come from Russia, they are feeling a little bit now as if they are back in Russia, where you couldn't, you had to be careful with what you were saying politically and things like that. So in a way, desire creates new kind of scapegoating. But I would, uh, in a way, I would be, I would differ a bit from Girard by uh, looking at it more or less as the same through, through history. I think maybe we must talk a bit differently about the scapegoating today. It's interesting that you touch on, you know, this idea of soft totalitarianism. And I'm thinking about how much of discussions around in the States, we, we endlessly bemoan something called cancel culture, or, you know, the lack of existence thereof. So much of that conversation seems like a battle of desire. You know, one person wants to be able to say or do anything without any regard for taboo or the feelings of the other. And another wants to prevent anyone from ever being offended and thus police their utterance to, to some degree or other. When you talk about the role of scapegoating as being different now or the scapegoat mechanism as, as being somewhat different now than the kind of grand mythological way, you know, Gerard talks about Christ or something like that. How do you see that playing out in the culture? You know, Christ was limited by his time and place. Therefore, when you think of the continuity of Christianity, it's important to, to talk more about the Holy Spirit because the charismatics have kind of limited, I feel, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this kind of evolving spirit where the scapegoat, where the ones who are subject to being expelled, get a voice. And today, everybody who has been a bit scapegoated are asking for a voice and claiming a voice. In a way, it's a, it's a marvelous development what's happening. On the other hand, you have this political correctness, which, you know, you don't really have your heart in it, you know, because human culture, we must remember, we have developed from the animals. Take a, a lion who sees a, a flock of zebras, you know, he'll go for the one who's uh, limping. And that's also a part of us today. So we can't believe that we are kind of going towards a world of eternal peace. There's something in humans which it will never be attainable. But there is nonetheless this development of things are getting better, you know. There is a positive. I'm sounding like a Hegelian now, and I am in a little bit, but it's not teleological, you know. It's, it's random. But it's not random in the way that it's this spirit which um, creates a, a warmer, a better atmosphere, a more inclusive atmosphere. 
And it's always interesting to see how society develops through this prism. Do you think that articulating the function of desire and being able to say, you know, as, as you've said, desire is itself a contentless sort of mechanism or function that behaves in certain ways, depending on what it's encountering in the world, what others are doing in the world, as a way of saying, see certain of your desires may be unjustly founded or may be erected for reasons that are not entirely pure. Do you think that that sort of theoretical articulation is in part responsible for driving the culture in this direction, you know, however haphazardly or randomly? Are we better able to hear what others are saying or doing because of a cultural attempt to articulate what we want, what we need, and why or why not? Well, the the theory, it helps you firstly to understand the irrationality of your desires, and it uh, makes you to become a bit defensive towards, you know, all kind of desire promising that it's going to, if you follow your heart's desire, everything is going to fall out very well. On the opposite, it's kind of, it's understanding how this, it suddenly turns into the opposite of what you desire. So desire is, is a very dangerous thing when it, it gets hot in a way, when you get too close to the mediator, when you get too close to other people in a negative way. In that way, I think, uh, for example, the family is, is very important, uh, that you have people you know you don't have to try to impress all the time you can just be yourself more or less so mimetic desire is it's more kind of understanding the turmoil and helping to maybe choose better models than if you just you know passively follow the what what's the in crowd for example uh, uh, that you can see clearly and that's one of the reasons i brought in lana del rey what she sings about is, I think people can relate very much to this extreme hope and desire of oneness with whom you uh, love. And then it turns out the totally opposite. Time after time, it's this repetitiveness, which is so interesting in her songs. You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Pierre Bourgnard Grande discussing his book, Desire, Flaubert, Proust, Fitzgerald, Miller, Lana Del Rey. I'm happy that you brought up Lana Del Rey because in the second half here, I, I really do want to talk about the cultural products that you that you deal with in the book. It's interesting that you mentioned the repetition of, of Del Rey. I, I know so many people whose relationship to popular music is a sort of repetitive consumption. You know, like you find that one song that really trips your trigger and you just want to hear it over and over and over and over again until it, you know, becomes a part of you. Until you kill it. Yeah, until you kill it dead and you consume it so much that it's that's exhausted. So you were drawn to Lana Del Rey because of this interest in repeatedly examining you know, the object of desire? Well, firstly, I, I could relate to, to, I thought it was, you know, something new in the way of music. Uh, but then uh, after that, I began analyzing it and I found, wow, you can use her worldview to understand desire, you know, one, one step further because of this repetitiveness. 
she so clearly has this, what Chirard calls scandalon, that uh, what you think is going to bring you everlasting joy turns out to be so morbid, so bad. In a way, the desire for the one you love, it's not just that all other people become more or less uninteresting. It's also that religion, politics, everything is swept up in this grandiose desire for the other, which turns out to be, you know, really nothing special at all. So she is a good guide into the negative effect of uh, desire today. And it's also, you know, it's beautiful. The, the, the songs are beautiful. So it's also this contrast with this beautiful song and this really dark uh, world she creates. Could we say more about the, the dark world of Lana Del Rey? When you, when you say that religion and politics and other kinds of things get swept up into desire for the other, how does that play out in, in her catalog? You know, it begins like usually it's a little bit the start of the song is like a Frank Sinatra. And then suddenly you hear these deep bass uh, sounds. And then suddenly into a very postmodern world of desire, of, of, of extreme hope in the beginning. It's like in Fitzgerald's novel, also, you know, uh, Gatsby has an enormous hope and he just doesn't see anything else than Daisy. And it's the same, or even more, in uh, Lana Del Rey. Like in uh, Gatsby, when he sees that Daisy had, had a child, he just looks bemused. Has she had a child? I don't want anything to have changed. You know, it's this extremely narcissistic way of uh, looking at um, the world. And I think this is a, a good description of how it is today, because our individualism has become so strong. And because of the scapegoat and that uh, the prohibitions are so weak, we, we, can, uh, we fall into another trap, and that is our own desires, uh, our subjective desires. And we fall victims, like Lana Del Rey saying that Elvis is my father, uh, Marilyn is my mother, uh, Jesus is my best friend. You know, these cultural icons they take over the normal life. So what happens in, a, in Hollywood is more important than your own life. And uh, you will lose your identity. If you can talk about identity, it must be that you have overcome your negative desires, I think. Because otherwise your identity is connected to desires in all kinds of... And then, of course, there are these good desires, these desires to make you want to help other people and, and so and so. So in a way, Girard has been very one-sided. It's only investigated the, the negative desire. So there is something lacking in, in his thinking of desires, which is strange. He seldom mentions saints. In some way, he's a bit Protestant in the way that it's, everything is on Christ, you know? Christ is the ultimate. And why is he the ultimate uh, goal of desire? Because he has no desire in, in the negative. It's the desire, you know, to help other people. This brings me back to the earlier question about the function of culture in this. As you were talking about Lana Del Rey and, and Scott Fitzgerald and that question of narcissism 
in a culture that has eroded the boundaries of prohibition. One of the things I wanted to ask about was how how these different characters come together in your book. And I think in this way, there's a definite cultural connection. You've got Fitzgerald writing about the jazz age, a time of famously, you know, loose morals and narcissistic desire for gold and success and luxury. You know, we obviously see the same world around us today. We all know what happens to Gatsby, right? I mean, that that desire, that narcissistic drive to return to the past does not lead to a happy place, uh, does not win him back Daisy or, or save him from his ultimate fate. I think the same is also true of Madame Bovary, who makes an appearance in your book. How do Flaubert and Proust fit into your picture? You know, there is a red thread in desire from Flaubert to Lana del Rey. And that is this worsening of when desire really gets hot, it turns bad. But it's a little bit different on each epoch, each period. Uh, and that was why I chose these novels and Lana Del Rey's songs. Where was desire the hottest in the 19th century in France? Why? Because of decadence, liberalism was so strong compared to other cultures. And... Uh, you know, in Proust, it's just so advanced. And it's also this uh, transformation from very traditional societies. For example, in Proust, you have this, when he lives out in the country in Cumbrai, they have this big discussion. Can we have <laughs> dinner one hour earlier on Saturdays? So uh, Francois, the, the, the servant, can go and shop earlier. And, you know, that is a terrific threat in traditional societies. And it's this decomposition of desire, which kind of ends in, uh, in the brothels in the, uh, during the First uh, World War, you know, where everything is decomposed. And in a way, it's an even further decomposition in, in my book, where you look at, in Arthur Miller, the decomposition of the family, you know, because of, because of the, the American dream, not because of the American dream, but you take the shortcut. The American dream, you know, has many positive things like to be honest, hardworking. But what's typical with in both the Great Gatsby and and Arthur Miller's uh, Death of a Salesman is they take shortcuts, and that's also part of desire. You are so focused on your success that it the the real humble work you just evade it. And then that turns out very badly. So all these books, which I uh, investigate, say something incredibly important to the modern age, to today, that if you just follow your heart's desire, it's not going to end up where you think it will end up. It's in fact going to end quite disastrously. Quite bad, can do. Uh, but also you have, of course, you know, conversion. And uh, being uh, preoccupied by work, working hard, and uh, changing models, models that really love you, you know, then you are in a way saved if you are lucky to have people around you which, you know, accept you not for your successes or, or, or but for your as you are as you are. It's been really fascinating to hear you connecting these works across disparate centuries. 
I especially appreciate that you did get Lana Del Rey in there, that this is both a sort of historical analysis of desire in the past and one that that is speaking to this moment. Do you see a, a space in contemporary, like criticism of contemporary culture for Girardian theory? Yeah, I think, you know, like I've used Lana Del Rey in an interdisciplinary way. That's the way to go in the modern world. In, in science, to open big doors with small keys, to go uh, for, you know, like mimetic desire. It, it can open up so much understanding of how, how the world goes round. Are you carrying this work on in, in other directions? Have you begun another project or is your scholarship still sort of looking at this nexus of, of desire and the novel and the pop song? Uh, no. This Lana Del Rey was a bit heterodox in my world, but I'm very glad I went for it. Also that I, you know, I, I write for young people because elder people won't change their views very much. But uh, uh, I want to have an impact. And if you are too particular and say, okay, Lana Del Rey, she's a si- singer. She can't be incorporated into this work on desire, which can, you know, be a bit kind of snobbish. That won't help very much. We must use every tool we have to try to understand our uh, existence, our uh, societies. So I would very strongly advocate for interdisciplinary work in order to enhance our understanding of our lives. I think that's a really good place to leave a pair. It's been super exciting to me to hear you articulate some of the work that's going on. And and I can't really emphasize enough how, you know, that last point about making your work accessible to readers and to to young people, the way that the book is set up and formatted and how clearly it's written, I think goes a long way for that. And I've really enjoyed hearing you talk about it and, and having this opportunity. So thank you so much again for taking the time. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Per Bjorner Grande's book, Desire, Flaubert, Proust, Fitzgerald, Miller, Lana Del Rey, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo, and the Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.